What a beautiful hymn. Sweet. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Thank you all for praying for me. I'm doing a whole lot better, praise God. And uh, very thankful uh, to be able to be here today. In 1907, some Presbyterian and Methodist missionaries gathered in Pangyang, uh, Pangyang, I should say, a city that is now the capital of North Korea. They gathered to pray for the annual Bible training classes that were to be held that month. And they prayed for a Holy Spirit to fall on these meetings. Those prayer meetings sparked what came to be known as the Great Pangyang Revival of 1907, or the Pangyang uh, uh, Pentecost. In the span of just a few months, the Presbyterian Church on the peninsula grew from 14,000 members to 73,000 members. And the Methodists doubled in size from 12 to 24,000. And by 1909, the number of Christians in Korea quadrupled. After the Japanese, who were occupying the Korean uh, peninsula, surrendered in 1945, Kim Il-sung and a band of Korean communists, with the help of Russia, arrived in, uh, in Wonsang City. Having failed in their effort to conquer South Korea, the North Korean communist government set out to purify the country from all those who opposed their totalitarian regime. Churches were decimated. In 1945, when the communists came, there were an estimated 3,025 church buildings. By 1955, they were, neither, they were either demolished or converted to other purposes. So from 3,025 to zero. Anyone found to be a Christian was either executed or sentenced to labor camps where they would usually die from, severe, from the severe conditions. Kim Il-sung and his son Kim Jong-il set up an ideology that every citizen in North Korea is to live by, which is called Juche. This ideology is amazingly similar to what we will be learning about today in Revelation chapter 13. More about that later. The last scene we left off with in chapter 12 was the dragon standing on the seashore, contemplating, as it were, his next move in his effort to destroy the woman and her offspring. In chapter 13, we are introduced to Satan's proxies. This would be the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, and through whom he tries to carry out his master plan to destroy the church and to make the rest of the world his subjects. Did he succeed in his effort? Well, if the book of Revelation stopped at chapter 13, then yes, the answer is yes, he did succeed, as we will see. But praise God, it does not stop at chapter 13. 
Chapter 14 is just around the corner. What do we see in chapter 14? Jesus standing with his saints on Mount Zion, victorious. And, uh, and then later in subsequent chapter, we will see the demise and demolishment of Satan and his, uh, and his allies. Satan indeed will have his heyday, his day in the sun, but it will be short-lived as his destruction will swiftly come. And we will see this in subsequent chapters. Now let us look at the appearance and activity of this first beast in verses 1 to 3. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head, on its heads. The, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Let's ask the Lord's help. Dear Lord, we come once again as beggars at your throne of grace and mercy, recognizing, Lord, apart from your spirit, our efforts are in vain. I can't preach your word aright, neither can your people hear it aright. So we pray for your spirit's presence and power in our midst, that he, Lord, would own your word, that he would edify and build up your saints, and that he would save the lost in our midst. And I pray this in his mighty name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. John sees this grotesque seven-headed monster coming out of the sea. First he sees the horns, then the heads, which have names of blasphemy written on them. And then the body comes into view. The body is like that of a leper, which is fierce, swift, ready to pounce on its prey. The feet are of a bear, strong and powerful. The mouth of a lion, growling and roaring, eager to, its, uh, to devour its prey and anxious to destroy. John notices that one of the seven heads had received a mortal wound, but the wound had been healed. There's an allusion here to the beast that uh, Daniel saw in his vision in Daniel 7. Daniel saw four different beasts coming out from the sea, which were uh, a representation of four successive kingdoms. In Revelation 17, the angel gives John an explanation of the heads and horns of the beast, which we will be getting into in more details when we get there, Lord willing. Uh, but for, for now, from that explanation, we understand that the waters represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. You can see that in, in uh, Revelation 17, 15. The horns and heads represent kings and kingdoms under the control of Satan who carry out his bidding on the earth. The seven heads would, uh, could have been understood by John's readers as the seven emperors that were most oppressive to God's people, starting with Calig Caligula in 37 AD, then Claudius, Nero, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. 
and the seventh was to come in the future. The ten horns are kings that will exercise authority simultaneously in the future, and these were told in Revelation 17, 13, they will use their power and authority to serve the beast. In a more general sense, the beast embodies the nations and governments of the world throughout the centuries that have oppressed God's people. Some have suggested that the seven heads represent uh, seven different empires of the past, starting with Samaria under Nimrod, Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Medes, and Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And this list of governments that have been used to, as tools of Satan have continued throughout the centuries to this day. As for the wounded head that came back to life, there are different views as to how John's readers uh, may have understood it. In more modern times, some have suggested an alliance of nations would be raised up at the end like the Roman empires that would uh, oppress God's people. Uh, in the past, some thought it was NATO or the European Union. Well, that hasn't happened. Uh, while others say that it, he is some satanically empowered individual who will gain worldwide prominence because of his supernatural phenomenon where he is thought to be dead, he has come back to life again. We'll talk further about the identity of the beast when we get to the mark of the beast at the end. Uh, I know there's a lot of technical stuff I'm throwing at you. There's a lot of information. Uh, just hang in there. Okay, we'll get to some practical application at the end. But we need to do this. This is important for us to understand so that you get an idea at least. Uh, I'm not, you may not get all the answers you want, but you get an idea of what the chapter is about. So that's, that's the, uh, that's the uh, point behind it. So please hang in there. These heads have blasphemous names written on them, so these earthly rulers blaspheme God by demanding for themselves worship, as the Roman emperors did back in the days of John. Uh, Juche, that we, I mentioned earlier, this, this ideology that North, that North Koreans are to live by, teaches that Kim Il-sung and his son Kim Jong-il are divine, immortal, and worthy of worship and honor. His name, Kim Il-sung, means became the sun, S-U-N. And his birthday is called the day of the sun. His first wife, Kim Jong-suk, S-U-K, was elevated to the palace, uh, to, I'm sorry, to the place of Juche goddess in 1997 in order to mimic the godhead of Christianity. Just to give you a feel for the uh, deification of the Kim family, listen to a couple of the principles from the Juche ideals that every North Korean must live by. There are 10 of them, 10 principles. Any surprise there to mimic the 10 commandments? The second says this, we must honor the great leader, comrade Kim Il-sung with all our loyalty. Number three, we must make absolute the authority of the great leader, comrade Kim Il-sung. Absolute loyalty to his authority is exactly what Satan demands of his subjects. You see the parallels here? So I'm going to be telling you more about 
North Korea. Just to give you a feel, brothers and sisters, what our brothers and sisters are living under today. We have seen a description of the beast. Let us now look at his activity and influence. Look with me at verses 4 to 8. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Every who's, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. We see it does these three things. One, it is worshipped by unbelieving the unbelieving world. Two, it blasphemes God's name. And then three, it wars against the saints. The whole world follows the beast in, in, uh, in wonder and amazement, in a spirit of adoration and worship, declaring, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, this rhetoric of praise given to Satan here is a parody of praise given to God, as mentioned in Exodus 15.11. It says, Who's like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? He will use, this beast will use his military and political authority over every tribe and people and language and nation to elicit widespread religious devotion. The whole world, except those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, will worship it, not for its moral excellencies, but for its power and authority. Then we're told in verses 5 and 6 that he, this beast utters blasphemous words. The beast was given, verse 5, was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 mounts. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. The highest form of blasphemy is for a man to declare himself to be God. You recall that the Pharisees tried to stone Jesus and finally succeeding in putting him to death because they said, you being a man, declare yourself to be God. There's a reference here to Little Horn in Daniel 7, where it says that uh, he spoke boastfully against the Most High and exalted and magnified himself above every god, Daniel eleven thirty six. We read that, amazingly, brothers and sisters, it says that he was allowed to do this for 42 months. Can you picture the amazing patience of God? This creature that he has made to blaspheme his name and his glory and his honor and his place of dwelling, and God allowed this. But I also want to remind you how patient God is with us. We blasphemed his name far more than 42 months. 
And by his grace, he yet saved us. He could have wiped us out right on the spot in that moment. And yet, he bore patiently day in, day out, day in, day out, for years, some of us. And then he brought us to the knowledge of his saving grace. Praise be his name. So he not only speaks blasphemous things against God, but we read in 7 and 8 that he, speaks to he seeks to destroy the church. Look with me at verse 7 and 8. Also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Notice it was allowed to make war with the saints and to conquer them. This was a permission granted by God. He could do nothing apart from the will of God. We are in the Lord's hands, not in Satan's hands. Amen. And so we can rest in that, knowing that whatever comes our way is from the good hand of our Heavenly Father. He loves us. And so nothing will harm us apart from his will. Also remember that the beast may physically conquer us, but it cannot destroy our souls because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He purchased us with his own blood and has given us eternal life. So they can kill the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. So because Jesus has purchased our soul with his blood. I'll address verses 9 to 10 in the application. So let's now look uh, at the second vision in this chapter of the beast coming out of the earth. Uh, let's look at its appearance and activity starting with verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. To John's readers, the first beast represented the power of Rome. The second beast would represent the imperial priesthood that assisted Rome in promoting the imperial cult, worship of the emperor. This beast has the appearance of a gentle lamb, two horns, looked like a lamb, but spoke like the devil, blaspheming God. Its mission is to compel everyone to worship the beast. This, brethren, completes the unholy trinity, hence the title of this message, the unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. As Christ receives authority from the Father, the Antichrist receives authority from the dragon. And as the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, the false prophet glorifies the Antichrist. It plays a supportive role to, to get everyone to worship the beast who was slain and is now alive. Does that sound familiar? What does the Holy Spirit do? Glorify Christ who was slain and is now alive. The second piece represents the false religion and philosophy, philosophies of this world. Jesus warned against these types of individuals. Matthew 7, 15, listen to these words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Paul's 
uh, said they appear as angels of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. This is where we will need godly discernment to distinguish the true from the counterfeit. Some believe that he is going to be a religious leader of one of the dominant world religions or some uh, syncretistic form of religion that has the support of the world's powers. Well, maybe so. But even now, there are all sorts of false prophets, all sorts of false religions, and even false teachers who are damning billions of people. Even now. Everyone who dies without faith, true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is destined to hell. Whatever their religion may be, whatever their faith may be, whatever their deception, they are being led by Satan. They're not followers of the Lamb. Amen. So brethren, yes, there will be some, there may be and will perhaps somebody like that at the end, but don't forget, we're living in that day today. Billions are, are perishing in hell because of false religions, false prophets, false Christ, right? Let's look now at its activity and its mission in verse 12 to 15. We've got to keep going because otherwise you'll be here for a while. Let's not, so verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was uh, wounded by the sword and yet lived. Verse 15, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It seems that the, its mission is to get everyone in the world to worship the beast. And it does this by deceptive signs and miracles. In the rest of the book of Revelation, this beast is referred to as the false prophet. We see here the alliance of religion and state as was in John's day and is now in countries like India and many Muslim countries where you have the religion and the state working together to accomplish one end. This beast is empowered by Satan to do some supernatural signs in the same way that the magicians in Egypt did so to counter Moses and Aaron's signs that they did to authenticate their divine calling. He does these signs as proof uh, of the second beast's power and in uh, invincibility. It does this in the appearance of the beast himself as a way to convince the people of its power and authority. Even calling down fire from heaven. Remember Elijah did this to authenticate that Yahweh is the only true God. He called fire from heaven. This beast is going to be allowed to do that. Right? One example, brethren, I've, I've heard more than once is... Uh, that some of these Illuminatis can make physical objects levitate. And this is no joke, that they can actually make things like this bottle 
just kind of start levitating. And this is people who, uh, credible people who have said they've seen this. Also, those who are demon-possessed can have superhuman strength, like we read in Acts 19 of the uh, possessed man who overpowered the seven sons of Sceva. He took over and he, they just left all injured and, and wounded and, and naked. This shows us that just because someone can do miracles, it does not mean they are of divine origin. We must ask about their purpose and their fidelity to Scripture. As the Lord told the people in Isaiah's day who were going to inquire of mediums and necromancers, that is someone who can reveal the future and communicate with the dead spirit like the woman that Saul went to uh, at Endor, the witch of Endor. Isaiah, here's what Isaiah uh, says, Isaiah 8.20. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn in them. In other words, they have no light, they have no truth in them. Don't follow them. If, if they don't, if the word of God doesn't bear true to what they're saying, do not go after them. The people being convinced of the power of the beast, they are then compelled to make an image of the beast in order to worship it. Similar to Nebuchadnezzar's statue that everyone was required to bow down to. The false prophets then proceeds to give breath to the image of the beast so that it could speak as further proof of its supernatural power. In the Greco-Roman world, people often believe that the image of the gods is inhabited by the spirit of the gods themselves. Gullible and superstitious people believe these signs and begin to worship the image. Many today will go so to, to faraway places just to visit some image of a patron saint that supposedly can weep or oil comes out of, or, or, or something to that effect uh, to get some sort of a blessing. These are delusions from Satan to keep people in their blindness and, to, and from believing the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ so they could be saved. And those who would not worship the image, they were put to death. Human beings ever since the fall are naturally prone to idolatry. Today, evolutionary humanism has become the new religion where man, not God, is the center of all things. So now we idolize great men like the Israelites were, we heard about last week, who rejected God as their king and wanted a human king instead so they could be like the rest of the nations. We idolize a person who is attractive, brilliant, strong, but in this case, even more so because it was able to do some supernatural things, some supernatural powers. There is a, a long list of political and religious leaders in history who have exalted themselves to this level of worship and idolization. One Korean writer said of, that, of Kim, he said that he was superior to Christ in love, superior to Buddha and benevolence, superior to Confucius in virtue, and superior to Muhammad in justice. This is what they thought of him. Brethren, we are not 
to be surprised when such men rise to prominence and power because both Jesus and the apostles told us about these false prophets and messiahs. Look with me for a minute at Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 4, uh, 24. This ought not to take us by surprise. It says in Matthew 24, 24, For false Christs, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If possible. It's not possible. But if possible, even the elect. That's how convincing these signs are going to be. That even the elect will be tempted to fall for them. Verse 26. Uh, 25. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Don't believe it. Oh, I saw Christ over there. Don't believe it. Because every eye will see him when he comes. Paul also told about this uh, man of sin, the lawless one who would perform signs and deceive many. Look with me, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. It's important that you know these verses. I'm making you turn to them so you could see them. You can, not just through the ear gate, but the eye gate. I'm sure many of you are familiar with them, but just look at the, the similarities here that we have been told about these things by the apostles, by the Lord Jesus himself. 2 Thessalonians 2.9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Those who refuse the truth will believe lies. And Satan, he's more than happy to provide the falsehood they need to remain in their deception and darkness. Now, I just want to take a moment here and ask if there are some here or online watching. I want to ask you, friend, this question. Have you come to see your need for the Lord Jesus or are you under the deception that you are good enough to make it to heaven? There are millions and millions of people who are under that deception today who think, I am good enough. If you ask them, if you die, where are you going to go? To heaven. Why? Well, I'm a good person. Millions and millions of people. This is a delusion. This is a deception of Satan. That he keeps people in dark about the condition, their own condition, and the holiness of God. They compare themselves to this world. Oh, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I don't kill. I don't steal. I don't. But compare yourself to the holiness of God. Then you will see, the scripture tells us, there is none good, no, not one. There is none that is righteous. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your own heart? 
secular humanists who feed you with lies, or God who cannot lie. That's God's conclusion of every human being on the face of the planet. We are dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing in us that would commend us to God. So I urge you, turn to him today in repentance and faith and let Christ set you free. Let the light of the world shine into your heart. He is the way, the truth, and the light. And he came to bring us salvation. Believe on him and be saved. John mentions again the wound that was healed. Evidently, he still bore the mark of the deadly wound, similar to the wounds that our Savior still bears from Calvary. See the, see the deception. See the mimicry. This is meant to draw a parallel between Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain and rose from the dead, and who is worthy of worship and praise, and the beast who had mortal wound to the head and is now healed, and he is to be worshipped. See the parallels? Satan's clever counterfeit. Having won the people over, the beast by these false signs, the false prophet now compels everyone to be branded with the mark of the beast. Look with me at verses 16 to 18. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on his right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast of, uh, uh, or the number of its name. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And just like the followers of the Lamb are sealed on the forehead for identification and divine protection, as we saw in Revelation 7, now the followers of the beast must be marked as well. This mark certifies their loyalty and devotion to the beast, as we see in, in subsequent verses in Revelation 14, 9, 16, 2, and so on. The mark is placed on, the, on either the forehead or the hand, for ease of identification. So if you're going to go and buy something, all you have to do is they're going to see it right here or they're going to see it on your hand. And only those with the mark are able to buy or sell things. Believers in the church of Thyatira suffered economically because they would not take part in the guild's festivals where they worshipped idols. In North Korea, they have a caste system called Songbun, or I'm sorry, Songbun, S-O-N-G-B-U-N, which means origin or constituent. This system classifies all North Korean citizens into th a prim three primary castes: core, wavering, and hostile. The classification is based on a person's actions as well as on one's ancestral allegiance to the Socialist Party. This classification will affect your access to education, employment opportunities, as well as how much food you can receive. Christians are considered the most dangerous, the most dangerous political class. Kim said in 1958, that the only way to change the behavior of Christians 
is to kill them. Praise God for the, for the many of our brothers and sisters in North Korea who chose to be killed rather than to compromise their faith in Christ. John then gives us further explanation in cryptic fashion on what this number or name of the beast is. Verse 18. This is what you've been all waiting for, haven't you? This is the moment. This is, this is it. We want to know, tell us who 666 is. Very few verses in Scripture have received more attention than this verse. Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Over the centuries, many have speculated as to who this might be. Uh, we uh, could spend the whole sermon on this point, but we won't. I like the counsel that Irenaeus gave to his people. He lived in the second century and was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle. So he should know one or a thing of two about this, right? Would you say? Here's what he said. He said, instead of feudal speculations, as many had done in his day, that Christians should simply wait for the actual fulfillment at which time the Antichrist's identity would be abundantly clear. Good counsel, in my opinion. So there are a couple of way, uh, main views on how to interpret this 666. One, the one interpretation is that this is an actual man whose name in the Greek adds up to 666, which brings us to what is called gematria or numerology, which is a system of assigning numeric values to alphabets. Uh, both the Hebrew and the Greek languages, the standard letters of the alphabet have a number associated with them. So the number of the name would be the sum of the numbers associated with each letter in the name. Clear? Okay. Some commentators believe that John is referring to cruel emperor Nero Caesar, whose name, works, uh, his name adds up to this number. John, of course, is not saying here, because John lived, remember, Nero Caesar died in uh, 663, 67, 67 uh, AD. John is writing is uh, close to 90 AD, so he's not, saying that, he's not saying Nero is going to return from the dead but someone like Nero, his character, his conduct, his evil and wicked ways. Now, throughout history of the church, Christians have tried to identify who the Antichrist is by using this numbering system, and they came up with all kinds of names. I won't take the time to list them. You can look them up. As an FYI, it is estimated that there is one in 10,000 that there's a name in 10,000 that adds up to 666. So there's a lot of people if you want to use that, that um, system. Second, a second method of interpretation says that six is the number of man because he was created on the sixth day. He will always fall short of perfection, that is number seven. In fact, he's going to fall short by 666 times. 
just like Jesus says, you know, when he was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? He said, no, 70 times seven. In other words, just, you're not going to, okay, 491, I could now, you know, I, I, I don't have to forgive my brother. That's not what he was talking about. It's like infinite. I think we can all agree on this one thing, brothers and sisters, that the beast and his kingdom will fail. And God's perfect kingdom will prevail. Amen. Amen? We'll leave it at that. Throughout history, there has been antichrist-like figures who denied Christ as Lord and Savior of mankind and tried to set themselves up as lords and saviors. The Roman emperors in John's day. Muhammad, who declared himself to be the final prophet, sent from Allah, who has the last word that must be obeyed by all. He denied the deity of Christ and his substitutionary atonement and death on the cross. The popes in the middle centuries who, and to this day, were referred to as the vicar of Christ, which comes from the Latin word vicarious, acting as a substitute for Christ here on earth, thus robbing Jesus Christ of his glory. We can list many more totalitarian regimes over the centuries that set themselves up as gods demanding total allegiance, even as Kim Il-sung in North Korea. And the list can continue, will continue until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that the antagonists have been identified, the stage is set for the final battle. So brethren, we live in this tension of the already, but not yet. The battle has been won, but victory has not yet been fully realized until the final enemy is completely destroyed, and that is Satan. And that we will see in coming chapters. Stay tuned. Let's now look at a couple of points of application. I said we would come back to 9 and 10, so what does this passage calls us to. And the first point, it calls us to endurance when faced with hardship. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must, must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In the same way that the letters to the churches ended with these words, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Here again, we're told to pay careful attention because a solemn choice must be made. A solemn choice must be made. And it is better that we make it now rather than wait for the time when we are in the moment. What's the choice? The choice is this. Either you accept the mark of the beast and live, or you cling to Christ and forfeit your life. A solemn choice. There is no getting away from it. It is imprisonment or sword. Those, who are, those are the two options. There's no getting away, as it says here. The one, if anyone is to be taken to captivity... Uh, captive, to captivity he goes. Anyone is to be slain with the sword. 
with the sword must be slain. There's no way around it. You deny, you deny Christ, you live, you own Christ, and you die or you're in prison or you're captive. So, that is why it says that we need to take to heart. We need to settle it in our heart. Where is our conviction? What will I do in such circumstances? When the Japanese occupied Korea, they occupied Korea from 1910 to 1945, they set up many Shinto shrines. And they told Christians that if they want to keep their churches and institutions, then they must bow to these shrines. Some Christians tried to compromise and said, this is just showing loyalty to Japan and has nothing to do with worship. So they conducted the rituals that the government imposed on them, while others chose to shut down their churches instead. The time may come when we will be faced with that choice. There's a, a line I read in the book, and it said that there were some Japanese officers who came into a church and they said, we have a simple request to make of you. And that is, you already worship three gods, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, all we ask is that you add one more, the emperor. Why would you deny this simple request? So the time may come. Let me encourage you with these truths, brethren, that this is a privilege for those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life to lay down our lives for him who has laid down his life for us. Secondly, remember that you are not alone, but your brothers will be and sisters will be standing there with you, and the Lord Jesus himself would be with you. Finally, remember that God has willed this. Before the final victory, we must suffer. We will get a preview of the final victory again, as I said in chapter 14. Secondly, in the second place, this message calls us to is to grow in godly wisdom and spiritual discernment. John tells us in verse 18 that we need wisdom and understanding and spiritual discernment, not only to calculate the number of the beast, but to discern his true character. You see, not just to calculate, but to discern his true character. One of our jobs as pastors, according to Ephesians 4, is to teach you sound doctrine so that you may grow in discernment and not to be led astray by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So then by looking at a person's life and doctrine, you will be able to discern whether this person is a safe guide or not. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 give us the qualifications to assess a man's worthiness for the office of an elder. They have to do this, uh, I'm sorry, they have to do with his life and doctrine. Uh, there, now, there may be questions of judgment and opinions that a person may hold, which you may not agree with, but looking at their track record, and are they sound in doctrine? Have they lived a godly life? This is what you need to be concerned about. Now, not to get into the fray, but since this is such a hot topic today, uh, let's just run this test on a pastor who, who's in the blogosphere lately. Many of you know that I'm speaking of Alistair Begg and uh, the counsel he gave to 
a grandmother about attending her, I think, granddaughter's homosexual wedding. Some have written him off as a false teacher that he shouldn't be listened to. Now, I would not agree with his counsel, but does he qualify as a false teacher? Let's run this test. I think if you followed his ministry, you can see he has been solid on the gospel, and particularly on this topic. In fact, if you listen to his sermon uh, 128, this, recent, this last month, uh, last week, uh, you would, he mentions about uh, how his position even caused you know, people to, to uh, leave a meeting that he was, he was conducting, where he held straight to the scriptures on that issue. Uh, so I listened to that message, and he said it was his personal opinion, and he chose to err on the side of compassion that would leave the door open for the grandma to have future gospel opportunities with her grandchild, granddaughter, I think it was and that he would not give the same counsel to every Christian. Now, brethren, we may disagree with his counsel, and we do, but I don't believe that makes him a false teacher. Should we listen to him, should we listen to him with discernment? Absolutely. You should listen to every Bible teacher with discernment, including your pastors, including me and Pastor Joe. You're not offending us if you are like the Berean spirit and go home and and, and examine what's being said and look at your Bible. And, and if you see something different, you say, hey, I don't agree with that. You, you have to do that with everybody, every teacher, because there's too much at stake. So, but just to underscore this point further, if you do a quick survey of verses that describe false teachers in the Bible, here's what you will find. Deuteronomy 13, 2, if a prophet says let us go after other gods and serve them. You shall not listen to that prophet. Ephesians 4.14, false teachers use human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Titus 1.10, there are many dis insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party who teach the sh uh, for shameful gain. Galatians 1.7-9, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach the gospel, uh, you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So this is not an exhaustive list, but here's a brief description of false teachers. They teach false gospels. They are insubordinate. They are empty talkers, deceivers, teach for shameful gain, use human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, and try to draw you after other gods. Right? That's just from those four verses that I quoted, that I just pulled those out, things out of there. So you just examine based on those things and say, is this guy described by this? Is he seeking to draw me after other gods? And, and so on and so on. You, you see what I mean. Brethren, you are in, if you are in the Word daily and under a sound expository preaching ministry, then you will grow in discernment. Finally, this passage calls us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are in countries where Satan harshly rules. And there are many places in the world uh, that this is happening to our brothers and sisters. I, I could think of uh, uh, Iran as such a place. 
I read just, and I know I see brothers from Nigeria. Nigeria, they, the Satan is, is destroying Christians like crazy. Uh, and I think it's the most, uh, this past year, the most death of Christians, I believe, was Nigeria. Because of the Islamic uh, uh, radicals who are seeking to act on behalf of Satan in destroying his church. Our, North brethren, uh, our brethren in North Korea have been living the reality of, of Revelation chapter 13 for 75 years. Can you imagine what it must be like not to be able to gather with other believers or sing audibly? I mean, how much we take pleasure in listening on, on you know, Spotify or some other, or Pandora or whatever, listening to Christian music all day long, have it playing in the background, rejoicing in the goodness of God, having your soul refreshed. They can't do that there. We need to pray for those who are risking their lives to smuggle Bibles into the country, those in prisons and labor camps, for the Lord to give them the inner strength to endure to the end. Amen. Who's leading us in prayer today? Oh, Brother Ken. Uh, after Brother Ken leads us in prayer, please take a couple of minutes, two to three minutes, to prepare your heart for uh, the Lord's table, and then I'll give some instruction about the table. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. Today we read about how all kinds of people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, will one day marvel and wonder at the feast and worship of image. Father, we take this as an opportunity to confess our sin, which is our propensity, even as redeemed children of God, to marvel at and esteem evil. How many times, Lord, do we show fear and awe towards those who do not follow you? We are prone to fear our families, to fear our employers, to fear our political leaders, to fear strangers who we will never see again, and even to fear children who need our godly leadership. We would rather honor those who do not follow you. We would rather follow their systems and their ways than to speak the truth to them and communicate things taught to us by your word. Please forgive us for esteeming men and for making light of your glory, power, and love. Mm -hmm. I even think, Lord, how prone we are to fear the number 666, mm -hmm. even though you have never instructed us to fear this number. Mm -hmm. Help us, God, instead to fear you alone yes, and to Lord. trust in your power and love. Mm -hmm. We thank you that we also read today of the Lamb's wonderful book of life. Hallelujah. We are most assuredly found in this book of life because the Lamb was slain for us. May you help us be assured of our forgiveness this morning, which we have in Christ, and of your unfailing love. And help us to live with courage and faith as the children um, you have created us to be. Amen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. In a few moments, we'll be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And if you are visiting with us, uh, you are welcome to join us. If you are born again, baptized, and part of a sound evangelical church, uh, you should refrain, especially if you're a member in a congregation uh, if because of willful, unrepentant sin or have significant, unresolved conflict with another member. So as brethren... Uh, begin to lead us in song. Please come forward, take the elements back to your seat. After a brief devotional, we will partake together.